Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. So we're in 1 John chapter 3. And it starts out here in verse 1. Behold, or we might say, check it out, or man, check this. Well, I guess that'd be about the only thing I can think of. Check this out. Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. I mean, check it out. Pay attention. Look at this. What type or what kind of love the Father has bestowed on you and me that we should be called the children of God. Have you ever thought about that? Man, God calls us his children. And, and you know, we were praying this morning before the service, and I've just had this, just a, I'm a broken vessel, man. We're just, we're marred. We're, we're broken clay pots, and yet God's bestowed his love upon us. What kind of love is it? Well, the Father's bestowed on us, first of all, undeserved and unearned love. We don't deserve his love. We, don't, we haven't earned his love. Paul, in Ephesians 2, verse 4, says, But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. If you caught that in that verse, Jesus views you and I as already raised up with Christ seated with Christ in heaven, right? The Bible says he sees the end from the beginning. And we look at our lives, man, I, I just don't feel, I don't feel that good about myself, but Christ sees the end result. What a, what a blessing that is. And notice that he says, well, you don't notice it unless you've turned to it, but in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4, I think it's actually verse 7, he says that uh, um, you and I, you know, we've been saved, we've been raised up together, we've been made to sit together in the heavenly places of Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come, plural, ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. You and I are the emblems of the exceeding riches of his grace and kindness in a couple of ages. I can think of two in particular, the kingdom age, the millennium, and eternity. Who knows if there's more ages beyond that. But that that amazing love that that Christ has bestowed on us, that God has, or the Father has bestowed on us, it's unearned love and it's undeserved. It's also unfathomable. I mean, just, you can't get to the bottom and completely get your, your mind wrapped around the fact that Christ, that God would love us sinners. In fact, Paul's prayer in Ephesians 3 verse 18 for the Ephesian believers is that they may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length, depth and height, to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. You know, there's two things in the Bible that surpass knowledge. Two things that you just, you, you, our finite brains just are unable to completely comprehend. And one of them is God's peace, 
We talked about that at the men's retreat we were at uh, this coming week, this past weekend. You know, God's peace. It's like, how do you describe it to someone? I, I don't know how to describe it, but I, I know that I get to experience it by God's mercy. I get to experience his peace. It's, it surpasses knowledge. God's love also surpasses knowledge. It's unfathomable. We'll never be able to completely wrap our brains around the fact that God has bestowed such a great love upon us. I don't know. It's amazing to me that we're called the children of God. But let me ask you this rhetorically. Who is it that calls us the children of God? Well, I can tell you one person that, or one group that doesn't, the world. They don't look at you and me and go, oh, those are the children of God. Right? They just look at us as, as some strange people. We're, we're strange. We're peculiar. Uh, lately, we're like right-wing fundamentals. You know, we're the, we're the deplorable people. You know, or we're, we're, they don't look at us as children of God. So who calls us the children of God? Well, the Father does. 2 Corinthians 6.18 says, I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. God the Father calls us his children. The Son does. Jesus does. Hebrews 2.11 tells us that Jesus is not ashamed to call us his brethren. The Spirit does. In Romans 8.16, it says, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God. So God calls you and I his children, but right now the world looks at you and I, and they don't recognize that we're the children of God. He says there in verse 1, it continues, it says, Therefore the world does not know us because it did not know him. You know, if someone starts talking to you about their relationship with God, and they tell you, yeah, you know, I've got this relationship with God, or they start talking to God, but they do not acknowledge Jesus as Lord and God, their Savior, then they're lying to you. They do not have a relationship with God. They don't know God. Either that or they're heavily deluded. Um, And these are not my words. These are Jesus' words himself. In John 8, 19, Jesus said, you know me. He's talking to the disciples. He says, or not the Pharisees, excuse me. He says, you know neither me nor my father. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. Later on in John chapter 10, verse 30, he says, I and my father are one. In John 14, verse 7, he says, If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. And from now on you know him and have seen him. He's speaking to his disciples. And Philip, one of the disciples, said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it's sufficient for us. And Jesus said, Have I been with you so long, and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, Show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? You see... If the world doesn't know Jesus, they do not know the Father. That's what basically Jesus, and Jesus says, if you don't know me, you don't know my Father. And if they don't know the Father or Jesus, they don't know you and I as either because we're the children of God. So they don't know us as well. But look at verse 2 of 1 John 3. Beloved, now we are children of God. Now that's a big statement. Because what that basically means is there's no initiation process. It's not like you're, you're uh, you know, before you become a, a full-fledged child of God, you've got to go through this probationary period. It's, not, it's right, like right now you are a child of God presently. How are we children of God? Paul writes in Galatians 3.26, For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. If you have a born-again relationship with Jesus Christ right now, you are a child of God. 
And yet, verse 2 continues, and it says, And it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. You and I have not yet been revealed to the world as the children of God. Right now they look at you and they look at me as just some weirdos, fundamentalists, narrow-minded, you know, Christians. But they don't see us as the children of God. But you know what? There is a time coming. In fact, Paul writes in Romans 8.19 that the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. Creation is waiting for you and I to be revealed as the children of God. And he says when Jesus, when he or Jesus is revealed, we too shall be like him. You know, all I was thinking about when I was, you know, children, when they're like a newborn baby, usually they, they're all wrinkled and they, they, you know, they all seem to look alike kind of. In my, I'm sorry if you have, my child looks really great. Well, to me, they all look alike when they're just this little wrinkled little, you know, look like a little raisin when they're born. Um, but you know, as they grow older, you start to see resemblance to their to their, uh, to their parents, and uh, probably more so as we age. Sorry for the bad news for some of you, but the older you get, the more you're going to look like your parents. Um, it's funny. You know, my dad had 16 brothers and sisters. There's two sets of twins, all from the same parents, uh, two sets of twins. And uh, growing up, there were some that looked kind of similar, but there were some that looked totally different. Like my dad had this one brother that just, they just did not look alike at all when they were younger. I saw a picture of him not too long ago. My dad's already passed away, but um, you know, it was probably taken maybe a, a couple, of, maybe a decade ago or something like that, where him and one of his younger brothers were together. And when they were younger, they did not look a lot at all. They looked like like I mean, they looked like twins. You know, it was amazing how you start changing as you get older. Well, when Jesus is revealed, we too shall be like him. First um, Corinthians fifteen forty nine, Paul says, as And as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. Paul also writes in Romans 8.29, For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. God is doing a work in your life right now to make you look like Jesus, to make you more like Jesus. And when he's revealed, we'll look like him. Verse 3. And everyone who has this hope in him, and that's in Jesus himself, uh, excuse me, and everyone who has this hope, has this hope in him, purifies himself just as he is pure. So everyone who has this hope in Jesus wants to be pure just as Jesus is pure. Now, we can't purify ourselves, right? Only Jesus can. And we cannot be sinless Only Jesus is. But for you and I as believers right now, there should be a desire in us to be more like Jesus. That that should be a goal in our lives. I want to become more like you, Lord God. So what what does a child of God look like? Well, the rest of the chapter, John kind of shows us what what does a child of God look like? What are the characteristics? What what makes a person uh, a child of God? Well, in verse 4, Whoever commits sin also commits, excuse me, whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness. And sin is lawlessness. 
And you know that he was manifested to take away our sins. And in him there is no sin. Whoever abides in him does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. That word sin, it's a Greek word that means to miss the mark. What's the mark? The mark is God's standard of holiness. We miss that mark. That's to sin. Lawlessness means a transgression of God's law. So what, basically what John is saying is don't try to minimize your sin. You know, a lot of times we do things like, well, I made a mistake. You know, I missed the mark and stuff. And we try to minimize our sin. We need to call it for what it is. It's a willful violation of God's holy standard. And so John says that Jesus appeared in bodily form as a man to take away our sins when he died on the cross, and there is no sin in him. And then he says, whoever abides in him does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. Now, this is a very interesting passage of Scripture, the, uh, verses uh, 4 through 9. According to the resources that I have, I'm not a resource, but according to the resources I have, um, I use Vincent's word study a lot of times when I'm doing my Bible studying. I also do Robertson's word pictures. By the way, you know you can get download on your computer or on your cell phone or on your iPads or whatever, maybe on your tablets too, whatever. Go to esword.com. On there, you can, you can download it. It's, it's, a kind of, it's a Bible app. They got all kinds of resources. Most of them are free. A lot of them are free. And you can get all this stuff. You, you could be studying like I used to and go, wait a minute, you forgot this. Or, you know, you could. But anyways, so I use, I use eSword quite, quite a bit. Um, I have other tools, but eSword is my, my main go-to place for doing Bible study. And one of the things I have is Vincent's Word Study. And I also have Robertson's Word Pictures, and I like to go to both of those sometimes when I'm looking at, um, I've got a Word Study Bible that, and uh, a Thayer's Greek Dictionary, and I've got a, a different resources. But I like going to Vincent's Word Study and Robertson's Word Pictures in addition to the, to the, um, to the dictionaries I have, because they kind of give you a little bit of a, I don't know, I just appreciate um, how they break things down. And uh, anyways, in the resources I have, the word sin there, that, that Greek word, it's a verb tense that means whoever keeps, and same with abiding, whoever keeps on abiding in him does not keep on sinning. That's really what this verse is saying. Whoever keeps on abiding in him does not keep on sinning. And all the way through verse 9, the verb tenses are the same. It's indicating a habitual or a continual action. I like what Vincent says on verse 6. He says, John does not teach that believers do not sin, but is speaking of a character, a habit, <clears throat> excuse me, a habit. Throughout the epistle, he deals with the ideal reality of life in God, in which the love of God and sin exclude each other as light and darkness. If you're abiding, if you're, if you're habitually, if you're characteristically abiding in Christ, then you shouldn't be habitually, characteristically sinning practicing sin. Verse 7, little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whoever has been born of God does not sin, for his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin because he has been born of God. So 
Robertson's word pictures. Again, that's one of the other tools I use. It goes to great lengths to explain, explain the verb tenses of the Greek word for sin, which is harmatenean. I'm not even knowing if I'm pronouncing it right. But he goes on to say this. A great deal of false theology has grown out of a misunderstanding of the tense of hamartanean, which is the word for sin here. You know, what am I getting across? What am I trying to, what am I trying to explain to you? What I'm not trying to do, I'm in, not way, in no way downplaying what John is saying about sin. Jesus destroyed the works of the devil on the, on the cross. He destroyed the power of death over your and my life. We are no longer slaves to sin, the Bible teaches us. We don't have to sin. But to continue a lifestyle of habitual sin is incompatible with the heart that's been surrendered to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. You just cannot continue in that same pattern of sin that you've continued in before you were saved. It's incompatible. And if we have his seed remaining in us there in verse 9, we cannot keep on habitually practicing sin. Why? Because his seed remains in us. What is that talking about? Um, Vincent calls it the divine principle of life. And what I think it is, basically, it's just the power of God in your and my life. You know, Christ dwells in our hearts. God dwells in our hearts. And via the Holy Spirit, he's doing a work in our lives, in our hearts. He's doing the work of sanctification in our hearts. So we can't continue in that sin that we've been delivered from. Now, there is one false theology um, regarding these verses, and it's known as sinless perfection. Where, okay, you, 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 as, as soon as you become a believer, you no longer sin. And th- this is one of their main passages of scriptures that they use to defend their argument about it. But the problem with that theology is it's not, it's not reality. It's not reality in our lives for one reason. I, I don't base everything on, well, it's real or not. How many of us have committed sins after we've been born again? I have. We've all more than once committed sin as believers after our salvation. That's the reality. That's the reality. That's, that's the facts on the ground, right? But it's also not supported in the entire body of Scripture. If you took this verse by itself, you could say, well, you know, maybe you could argue it and say, well, you know, that's what it's teaching. But when you go throughout the rest of Scripture, it, does not, it doesn't bear together. It doesn't fit. Galatians 5.17, Paul says this, for the, lust, uh, for the flesh lusts against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. These are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. See, we have a problem. We've got our flesh. <laughs> We're living in sinful flesh. And that flesh, once you become a believer, man, that flesh is at war with your spirit. Because now your spirit's been made alive in Christ Jesus. Now you've got eternal life dwelling in you. And and now you've got that that power of God. He's dwelling in you. And now there's this battle that goes on. And it's going to continue going on. That's the bad news, man. It's going to continue going on because why? You're living in your flesh, sinful flesh right now. That's one place. Paul's letter to 1 Corinthians. And by the way, that's a church, a church in Corinth. It addresses in part an issue where a believer is practicing a sin that he says it's worse than the Gentiles. The Gentiles don't even do this, but there's this believer at Corinth that is committing this sexual immorality. 
And Paul instructs the Corinthians there in chapter 5, verse 5, he says, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Well, they do that. They follow Paul. At first, they're like, hey, look at Paul. We're really diverse. You know, we celebrate, we, we allow anyone into our church, you know, and they, and they, they kind of celebrate. You know, that's kind of the push today in our, in our culture, right? Hey, let's celebrate everyone's diversity. Well, all the Corinthians, man, they're, they're way ahead of the time. They probably had a rainbow on there in front of their church or whatever, but um, they did that. They listened to Paul. They, they said, oh, wow, I guess we've been blowing it. So they practiced church discipline as it was outlined by Paul. And guess what? The believer felt shame about it. He repented of his sin. And then Paul said, instructed them, Paul instructs them to receive him back into fellowship. This was a Christian who had done this. In Paul's letter to the Galatians, now I'm really going to, this is really going to rock your world. Paul's letter to the Galatians in chapter 2, he addresses Peter's hypocrisy. By the way, hypocrisy is sin, okay? Peter was sinning. Whoa, I didn't think, I thought popes were infallible. Well, (laughs) by that, imagine that. Well, guess what? I'm being facetious, by the way. Popes are fallible. And also, Peter wasn't the first pope, so. But anyways, it still rocks your world. You mean one of the apostles was in sin? Yeah, absolutely. Why? Because he's flesh, just like you and I. We all are. In fact, the letter, this letter, 1 John itself, is written to believers, And in 1 John 1, verse 8 through 10, listen to this. If we say that we have no sin, now we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. He's speaking to Christians. If we confess our sins, he's speaking to Christians. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Sinless perfection is not scriptural, guys. In chapter 2, verse 1, My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin, but listen to this. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So if you're a child of God, man, he loves you so much. If you continue in sin, habitually practicing it, willfully disobedient, he loves you so much Because you're his child, he's going to chastise you. He's going to chasten you one way or the other. He's not going to let you go. He only disciplines his children whom he loves. So this morning, if you're sitting here right now and you're continuing in a sin that you're aware of, but you're willfully being disobedient, you know that you're not supposed to be doing this, but you're willfully being disobedient, I got news for you, man. God's not going to let you continue indefinitely. I just, I'm forewarning you. It's much better for you to confess and repent now than to harden your heart more and continue. Why? Because it's going to be, it's going to be just that much rougher on you if you continue. So verse 10, chapter 3, First John. First John 3, verse 10. Is this the, uh, excuse me, in this the children of God and the children are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. So now they added something else. (laughs) For this is the message you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, not as Cain, who was of the wicked one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brothers righteous. Listen, if you're practicing sin or practicing righteousness, it's an indicator of who's your daddy. 
See, whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. And then he adds, nor is he who does not love his brother. That's another indicator if you're a child of God. Do you love your brother and sister in Christ? You know, we say, well, I love Jesus, I got, but, but man, I really have a problem with this guy over here, or this woman over here, man, this brother in the Lord, they, I, I, I have issues with them. Another indicator for your child of God is if you love your brother and your sister in Christ. Why did Cain murder Abel? Simply because Abel offered an acceptable sacrifice to God, a work of righteousness. And Cain had offered an unacceptable sacrifice, a work of evil. And you guess what? Abel's righteousness stood in stark contrast to Cain's unrighteousness. And Cain hated Abel just for that simple reason and murdered him. And so there in verse 13, John's making a point here. He's speaking to these believers, these children. He says, do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. Why? Because your righteousness stands in stark contrast to their wickedness. To their evil, and they hate you for it. They're going to hate us for it. Verse 14, we know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. What does it mean by passed from death to life? Well, the Bible teaches that we're spiritually dead in our trespasses and our sins, and the wages of sin is death. We have a death sentence on us, eternal separation from God before we come to faith in Christ Jesus. That's the wages of our sin. But when we confess our sins and repent of them and we put our trust in Christ and his finished work on the cross, man, we're born again. You have Jesus now indwelling in your heart. At that point, you've passed from death to life. You now have resurrection life. The minute you accept Christ in your life, Oh, yeah, we might physically die, but the Bible teaches that for the believer, man, to be absent from the Lord is to be present with the Savior, present with Jesus. I mean, in the moment you, cl- you close your eyes, the next moment you're open, you're, you're there with Jesus. So one of the evidences of the new life in you and I is a love for the body of Christ, a love for fellow believers. Verse 15, whoever hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. So here Jesus equates the sin, or not here, but in, in Matthew's gospel and in, in the Beatitudes, Jesus equates the sin of hate with murder. And the Bible teaches us that murderers will not inherit the kingdom of God. So this morning, if you have hatred in your heart towards someone, and you know what? It's possible in a group this size that somebody you're, you're dealing with, maybe somebody has hurt you in the past and you just hate them for it. And you probably have a good reason why you hate them. Maybe they did something really terrible to you or to your family or whatever. You have good reason. It's not without cause. They've done something or maybe they're continuing to do something to hurt you in some way and you hate them for it. And you go, well, man, I have every right to because look at what they did. Well, you can't do that. What you need to do is pray and ask the Lord to change your heart. You know, the Bible doesn't lay out conditions. Like if you hate someone who's hurt you, you know, then you, you know, that's okay. No, he says, if you hate your brother, man, you're in sin. You need to change, pray the Lord change your heart. Verse 16, by this we know love because he laid down his life for us. And we also ought to lay down our lives for our brethren. You want to know what true love looks like? It looks like John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. If we know 
and we've experienced God's sacrificial love, we should be striving to sacrificially love our brothers and sisters in Christ. Striving, okay? We should be, that should be our goal. We should be trying to do that as best that we can. Verse 17, But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and truth. It's really easy for me to say, man, I love you. But am I willing to lay down my life for you? That's a different thing. Am I willing to put it, put you know, some action to my words? Adam Clark puts it this way. Here is a test of this love. If we do not divide our bread with the hungry, we certainly would not lay down our life for him. I mean, we say, man, I, I'll die for that brother. Man, I'd lay down my life, but, but I'm not going to give you any money, man. Or I'm not going to help you out. I've got this, but I'm not going to, I'm not going to, you know, it's mine. If we do not divide our bread with the hungry, we certainly would not lay down our life for him. Whatever love we may pretend to mankind, if we're not charitable and benevolent, we give the lie to our profession. We say we love him, but we're not willing to to share with what we have. We're lying. Verse 19. And by this we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. If our profession, that we love one another, that we sacrificially love one another is backed up, by sacrificial actions, our hearts will have that assurance that we are of the truth. So if, if your heart, if you feel like, man, I've, I feel like I've done the right thing, man, that's cool. Awesome. But then in verse 20, John's quick to point out that we can't rely on our feelings. Why? Because the heart is deceptive above all things, man. We, we can fool ourselves. We can, you know, we can feel self-condemnation. I, I know this brother in the Lord. I, 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 man, I dealt with him for a long time. He was born again, but he just, he just kept, he just kept feeling like, man, I don't earn, you know, I can't earn God's grace, and and he just always feeling this condemnation. I'm like, man, you've been forgiven. Move on from that. Don't keep wallowing it. You've been forgiven. Move on. And he was just continually dealing with this condemnation that that was of the enemy. And so you can't rely on your feelings. Well, I really feel good about myself. <laughs> Or, you know, false condemnation. Verse 20, for if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. You see, it's possible and in fact common to have false accusations from our adversary, the devil. But God's greater than our feelings. He knows us better than we do. You can't rely on your feelings. Verse 21, beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence toward God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. You see, if you and I are loving one another in deed and in truth, we're not feeling condemnation, man, we can have confidence in our relationship with God. What a blessing having a true confidence in our standing before the Lord. If we know that we're keeping his commandments and doing those things that are pleasing to him, in other words, your and my hearts are aligned with Christ's, with God's heart, we know that the Lord will answer our prayers. We'll receive whatever we ask of him. But the point is, it's when our heart is in the right place with God. When we're asking, like I was telling the children this morning, God wants each of us to be wise. He wants us to have his wisdom. If you pray and say, Lord God, I need your wisdom, do you think he's going to go, well, I don't know if I want to give it to you? No, that's his desire too. Your heart is in line with his heart. Lord, I need wisdom about this. I want you to have wisdom about this. So you pray for it, man, boom, God answers your prayer. I'm going to give you wisdom because that's my will for you too. 
You know the same thing with your kids. When your kids ask you, Dad, can I eat some vegetables instead of, you know, a snack after school? Yeah, I want you to eat vegetables. Go ahead, you know. No, I think you should have some Twinkies, you know. Don't eat vegetables. Don't want to spoil your appetite, you know. It's just... When our heart's in the right place with God, we'll be asking what he wants us to ask for him, and the answer's going to be yes. Verse 23... And this is his commandment that we should believe on the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he gave us commandment. Not simply believing Jesus is who he says he is, although that's certainly part of it. Not simply believing that Jesus died on the cross and rose again. Again, that's definitely part of it. But believing on him. In other words, trusting in him, relying on him, and clinging to him. Then hand in hand with that love, loving one another as he loved us. Verse 24. Now he who keeps his commandments abides in him and he in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. That goes all the way back to Romans 8.16 which I quoted before. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. So I want to encourage you this morning. You are, today, if you have a born-again relationship with Jesus Christ, you are a child of God. Now, the world, maybe your unsaved family, maybe your your coworkers or whatever, the the, the neighborhood, they, they don't see you that way, but you are a child of God. And one day, we're going to be revealed. The world's going to look at us and go, man, there's the children of God. Wow, I didn't know I, was, I lived next door to them. Hopefully, they do know that you live next door, and hopefully, they'll figure it out. But can you imagine that? One day, the world's going to look at us and go, wow, there's the children of God. Why? Because we've been becoming more and more like Christ. And when he's revealed, they're going to go, wow, they look alike. Anyways, let's go, Lord, in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word this morning. Lord, thank you for the encouragement, Lord, that we have in, in John's letter. Father, I just pray for each one of us because we all deal with the issues of sin in our lives, Lord. Lord, it's a struggle. Lord, I thank you that uh, your word says that when, when we sin, if we confess our sins, you're faithful and just to forgive us. Lord, I thank you, Lord, when we, when we think of the manner of love that you would bestow on us because, Lord, we still blow it. Lord, we've been born again, and yet, Lord, we still fall short sometimes. And yet, Lord, you knew that in your foreknowledge, and yet, Lord, you still chose to die on the cross. And that, Lord, I thank you that your word says that you're not done with us. Lord, that he who began a good work in us will will see it to completion, Lord God. I thank you for passages of scripture like that to encourage us. This morning, Lord, I pray for each one of the people here, Lord. I pray that you would encourage them. Lord, I pray that we would abide in your love, that we would abide in you, Lord, that, Lord, that um, we, would, we would start saying no to those sins that maybe, Lord, we, maybe we're struggling with. Help us to say no. Help us to make a change today. And Lord, I thank you that you've given us your Holy Spirit to empower us to do that, to live that life that's pleasing to you. And Father, I just pray as well, Lord, that as we get our lives and our hearts vertically aligned with you, Lord, that Lord, when we look around on the horizontal plane at, the, at the, our brothers and our sisters, Lord, help us to love one another sacrificially. Help us to love in practical ways, Lord, not just in platitudes that we say we love one another, but, Lord, that we would, we would live it out as a body of Christ. 
Lord, your word says they'll know us by our love. And I pray, Lord God, that uh, people would know Calvary Chapel Rochester because we love one another. I thank you for each one of the saints here, Lord. I pray your blessing upon them this day. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.